When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another episode of A Stab in the Dark, the UK TV podcast that investigates the worlds of crime fiction and TV crime drama, that invites some of the biggest names in both genres over for a dinner party, only to sprinkle deadly cyanide into their chicken chasseur. No, not really. We love our guests and we'd never serve them chicken chasseur at a dinner party. My name's Mark Billingham and today I'm talking to one of the most acclaimed and popular crime writers in the world because that's what we do. He's the author of the hugely popular Charlie Parker series as well as standalones, young adult novels and fantasy. He's what you might call a literary polymath though because he's a friend of mine I'm going with smart arse. He is the fabulous Irish writer John Connolly. Welcome to A Stab in the Dark. So, John, thanks very much for joining us. Obviously, we're going to be talking about The Woman in the Woods, uh, your new book, but I want to go back a bit first. Um, You've often talked about there being no real tradition of crime writing in Ireland back when you started. So, firstly, why do you think that was? And why did you decide to buck the trend? Well, I'm not sure. There there was crime writing in Ireland. Um, There were a couple of quite, quite, one or two quite well-known writers who immediately got claimed by the English because that's what happens whenever we do something good. If we do so, if we do something bad or Irish, if we do, if we succeed at anything, Bill Goldie's actually English, you know. Right. I think one of them was from Belfast. Um, but possibly, certainly in the twentieth century, we didn't make much commercial impact. There's a bigger question here, which is that. Um, for most of the 19th century, our genre fiction was fantasy literature. That was what Irish writers wrote. And so if you look at kind of the six pillars of the Gothic tradition, uh, two of them would be Frankenstein and Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The other four are by Anglo-Irish writers. They're uh, Maturin's Melmoth the Wanderer, Dracula by Bram Stoker, uh, Peter Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde, and Uncle Silas by Sheridan Lefanu. So they're the, they're the corners. They're, they are actually the supports for the Gothic tradition. Um and that was the genre we were comfortable with, I think, because mystery fiction comes out of rationalism, the idea the world can be understood by a process of logic and reasoning. And in the, with not being facetious in any way, Irish people have probably been quite uncomfortable with that as a way of looking at the world. It's very hard to be Catholic and, 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 and be entirely rationalist. The two things don't go together. And then... You know, Ireland is, is a very young country. You know, we haven't been independent for a century. Uh, you know, so... At the when we were trying to achieve independence, a lot of writers returned to Irish folk traditions, Yeats, Lady Gregory. But after we achieved independence, it was as if genre fiction wasn't serious enough for the discussions that were going to happen. We were in the process of building a country. And and that persists for quite a long time. So um, the, the, whatever literature, whatever fiction was going to contribute to the national discussion, it wasn't going to do it in the form of genre fiction. 
And and so even in the fantasy tradition, it's uh, that dries up almost entirely after this wonderful richness that we've had for so long. I can only really think of uh, two lovely books by a man named Mervyn Wall called uh, The Unfortunate Fursy and The Return of Fursy, which are really lovely books about this uh, monk living in a monastery, a medieval monastery, who's asked to perform the rite of exorcism to protect the monastery uh, from the devil. And because he's got a stutter, he doesn't do it right. And so the forces of hell invade and he gets thrown out. And they're quite, quite lovely office, but that's about it for the fantasy tradition. And then when in the 70s and 80s, when you have this sudden, um, you know, mushrooming, this huge growth in England in particular, but also in America, of genre fiction, uh, of mystery fiction being taken seriously, uh, making these huge inroads into the bestseller lists. In Ireland, we have the Troubles. And it's very hard for Irish writers, I think, to write mystery fiction when, A, up the road, people are engaged in in this throwback to religious and certainly religious warfare, class warfare to some degree. Uh, It seems that, you know, if you're to write a Mrs. Miggins, you know, mystery novel, it just just doesn't seem appropriate under those circumstances. And also because we're... um, we're not a very violent society. Uh, and because we've lost that tradition, what tradition are we going to follow? We don't have one of our own. We can't really follow the British tradition because we don't really have any faith in the British tradition. We've just dumped you out after hundreds of years. Um, and so while that extraordinary uh, growth is happening in, in, in England and, and in America, it's not happening at all in Ireland. Uh, there are vague outliers. There are writers, um, a couple of writers. Uh, I'm thinking Jim Lusby, probably um, Eugene McEldowney in the 80s and 90s, who have a go at it. But even Irish people don't want to read it. You know, there's a real problem, and it certainly doesn't sell outside Ireland because um, a the, we we haven't really grasped the market yet, and English people ha- kind of have an antipathy towards reading anything about Ireland. You know, there is a jadedness, I think, uh, at that point with with Ireland because all you hear is bad news coming out of Ireland. Yeah. And that continued really until this century. If you, you Stuart Neville writing The Ghost of Belfast is told by his publishers to take Belfast out, out of, of the, the title. Because, yeah. you know, immediately English people go, oh, I certainly don't want to read about that. So so it becomes really quite complicated. And, and it's only really with the end of the Troubles, um, with the beginning, I suppose, of the, the Celtic Tiger, although that turns out to be a kind of false flag as well for all kinds of different reasons. Um, and perhaps um, a generation growing up, like of which I suppose I was a part, that had immersed itself in British crime fiction, but to, for me to a larger extent American crime fiction, and didn't see any problem with the writing it. In fact, saw it as a way of escaping this very moribund tradition of Irish literature. And so that, what we have at the moment is a... Is, there has been there's now kind of serious critical attention being serious academic attention being paid to genre fiction in Ireland. Trinity College and UCD have very good courses on popular fiction, and they have young academics who understand the point of connection between genre fiction and literary fiction. In that you know, um, all fiction is genre fiction on some level. It's just a matter of deciding how people choose to use it. The great example is it's very hard to think of an American novel that doesn't have a crime in it. It doesn't necessarily make them crime novels, but genre is embedded in the DNA of the literary novel. That progress, disappointingly, I think, has not been made critically. 
And the next generation of, of writers that have come up, young Irish writers that have come up, appear to be as ignorant of genre fiction as the and as, as, as snobbish about it as the generation that preceded them. And that's saying something when Colm Tobin is part of that generation. You know, Colm right. Tobin, an outrageous snob about genre fiction. Um, a very good writer, but an outrageous snob. And I thought that a generation would come up with, that would have slightly more intelligence. But it seems as committed to maintaining that huge gap between it and it comes out of ignorance um this belief that we have in the supremacy of the literary novel is a product essentially of the 20th century the between the two world wars um c.s lewis and J.R. tolkien who are the leading lights of, of literary study of the study of english in, in in the academic community in england sit down for a meeting and what they what they decide is actually they realise that this this fiction thing isn't going to go away, you know. After after you know nearly two hundred fifty two hundred years, it appears to be quite bedded down. And so you know Tolkien and Lewis have probably over a sherry uh, decide that well actually maybe we should have people study maybe we should allow fiction to creep into the study of it. But only I think it's fiction only before eighteen twenty. <laughs> so before it actually gets to like Dickens, where it's the stuff that people really want to read because. Fiction was always regarded as the poor relative of poetry and drama. They were the art forms. And what's wonderful about fiction is that fiction is the first great populist art form. Fiction is the stuff that the servants can read. Um, and so this this peculiar snobbery, these, these distinctions that we're making between literary fiction and other forms of fiction are actually quite recent and are products of people who really by and large don't have the slightest idea of what they're talking about um, and so I've kind of got, got a little bit tired of that um, I have to say and, and now I've become quite bulky about it. Oh, well they're still there I mean you've got, you've got Will Self the other day talking about how the novel is still the poor relation uh, oh, yeah, well, yeah. You know, to try and excuse his own unreadable novels, arguably. But well, yeah, you know, and I, and I, I, the thing is, I don't. Um, this we, we've genre writers have spent a long time apologising, almost apologise for what we do, and we don't help ourselves. Crime novelists, in particular, don't help themselves I, I know. because we have a. There's that lovely, you know, that lovely uh, sketch about class in England where it's Ronnie Bor. I looked down Ronnie on Corby. him. I looked down on him and, yes. and John Cleese. And, and mystery fiction is, is, is so middle class. It is, it is the Ronnie Barker figure in the middle. And it's looking up to literary fig, figure. We look up to literary fiction with this awful forelock tugging. And, you know, and when, when a literary writer uh, announces that they're going to write a crime novel, there's this absurd kind of gratitude that we have. Oh, God, thank God, you're all, come down, come down and, and make us feel worthy. And, 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 and then we look down as mystery writers. We've always looked down on other forms of genre fiction, particularly horror. The supernatural, uh, mystery fiction, certainly in in the modern form, appears to have a deep distaste. I think for um, or had until quite recently a deep distaste for for horror fiction in particular because it saw horror fiction and supernatural fiction as the antithesis uh, antithesis of of everything that it be- that it believed itself to be, and that that returns to that idea of rationalism. Um, and yet, if you go back to the roots of the genre. Um, if you look at a book like The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins, which is, for many people, the first true novel of detection or crime in English, um, it's suffused with the fear of the supernatural. You know, the, the moonstone is cursed. That's what the fascination is with it. Um, 
you've got Arthur Conan Doyle, mm. you know, creating Sherlock Holmes, and at the same time believing in the Cottingley theories and and going to seances with Harry Houdini because he believes if he finds a a true medium, he can contact his dead wife and child. There was a tension between the two right from the off, um, and then sometime can't be like sometime between nineteen sixty something, nineteen seventy something, where mystery fiction decided well, actually, especially in England. Uh, well, mystery fiction is going to be this thing that is set somewhere between the birth of Sherlock Holmes and the death of Poirot, and everything else will be outside that. So if you were to set a, a mystery in the West, it would be a Western. And, and that, has, that persists until the moment. I, last year, Chris Brookmeyer writes what is essentially a mystery novel set in the space station. It's a version of And Then There Were None. It's, mm. it's what the classic mystery trope, it's the enclosed space that people can't get away from and people being knocked off. And suddenly you get some of these people going, well, I don't read science fiction. And Chris goes, well, it's not science fiction. It's a mystery novel. You're confusing the setting with the thing itself. But because I've had a spaceship on the front of it, people, well, that's a science but fiction he's still, novel. But he's still got people writing to him to complain, going, I didn't know this was going to be a science fiction thing. I, and it, there's a dirty great space station on the cover. But there is, I don't but, know quite how much but that's more the other way, I but, but it's, Yeah, but the thing is, it's, my argument would be that novel isn't science fiction. That's part of the problem. That, yeah. Yeah, it, doesn't become sci- it doesn't become science fiction by virtue of the fact that you happen to set a mystery novel on a spaceship. That's not science fiction. Science fiction is something very different. Speculative fiction, I think as they prefer to hear it called, is something very different entirely. It's a kind of, at its best, is a fiction of ideas. Just because you set a mystery on a spaceship, does that make it science fiction? Oh, I think it's on the it way does. there. No, I, I think, think it's I'm, on the way there. I think you're part of the problem now. That's, that's Am all I part I of the say. problem? I think you're part of the problem rather than part of the solution. Oh, okay. So, But it's the same, same answer. If I set a mystery in a Western town, does it become a Western? If I set a mystery in 1880 in the West... That involves people in a small town being killed. Is there cowboys? And, and a sheriff trying to investigate. Oh, there's a well, sheriff. Well, because there isn't anything else. What is sheriff or a marshal? What do you want? Do you want a, a village bobby coming in? <laughs> well, what is it going to be? Listen, before this turns it before this turns into a one answer podcast. Well, you did ask a good I, question, I, I, okay, and I'm okay. giving you a, a, a variety of a answers. A variety of answers. Well, listen, I just <laughs> so want... even some of which may even be true. But you did. The point is, you you did, despite all that, despite the fact there wasn't this explosion of, of mm. genre fiction. In Ireland, you did write a genre novel, arguably two different genres, which we'll come to in a minute, and all different different influences. But that first novel, Every Dead Thing, um, made a made a hell of a splash. Let's be honest about it. it. Made a big splash in publishing circles. I think. Am I right in thinking it was the biggest advance paid to a debut author in Ireland or something? Or yeah, there was certainly a lot of yeah. talk about it. A lot of fun. Sure. But also, also a very acclaimed novel. Um, you know, I've told you before that I read it while I was writing my first novel and uh, almost gave up writing and I'm not going to blow any more smoke uh, up your ass because I, I know how much you like it. Um, <laughs> but here's the thing, did, did that make writing the second novel? I mean, was there a lot of pressure on you after that first book? Um, not entirely. Um, the first book took a long time to write, as first novels do, because you're trying to fit in writing your first novel which with whatever you're doing during the day. Um I was fortunate enough that when I delivered Every Dead Thing, um, my agent, my lovely agent, Darley Anderson, kind of said to me, well, have you thought about the second novel? And I suppose to, to some degree I had, you know, that makes I wasn't expecting to be published. And most of us don't, and anybody who does shouldn't be. Um, but I... I, I I, I kind of had the seed of what it might be. And I've always written that way. I never really know what the books are going to be about, but I will usually have an image. My books always start with one scene. Um, and with um, A Dark Hollow, it was this idea of a tree that had essentially been decorated with girls. And and so when, by the time Every Dead Thing had come out, I had Dark Hollow more or less written. And that's a very... 
it's a piece of advice I always give to people. If you can at all, um, get there, get get the bones or the the hard work on the next the next novel done. Because two things happen. The first is that obviously you suddenly get swamped with attention that you that you didn't have before, and that becomes quite time consuming. Um, but the other thing is that you you're you don't have a shell. You don't have a protective layer at that stage. And so you're putting this thing out to the public uh, and you're leaving it. It's obviously going to be be analysed or criticised. And not all of that criticism will be favourable. Um, and over the years, you get better at dealing with it. You decide how you're going to deal with it. But most of us have never had the experience of... of of opening a newspaper and seeing our name in it and having things said about us that we we might prefer not to have said at all. <laughs> the thing about Every Dead Thing was that it had, while it had some wonderful reviews, the bad reviews of Every Dead Thing are as bad as any reviews I've ever read. The good reviews were, were extraordinary, but equally people reacted quite viscerally for it. And it set a kind of pattern for what happened in my career later because by and large the worst reviews I get are from other writers. Now make of that what you will. Well, that was true of Every Dead Thing. Uh, it was certainly true of the Book of Lost Things, that, that the, the harshest reviews for that book came from writers. And I'm not sure why that is. Um, I know mean, usually people need to get to know me first before they dislike me. <laughs> it was quite, quite hard to be disliked before anybody met me. So I think that, that was the diff- that was Having Dark Hollow done made that process slightly easier because I wasn't... I didn't have a, the, the crisis of confidence... I had time to weather the crisis of confidence that comes. Um, now, I don't believe anybody says they don't read reviews. What, I, what I'm very good at doing is reading the first and last lines of a review. If the last line of a review is bad, I don't read the review. I don't need to read. It's mm. not going to do me any good to read that review. And now, if I read a good review, I don't believe it. Yeah. You know, your tendency is to think, well, yeah, have I just been around long enough? Which, which happens, you get around long enough that you, you maybe get... Not critic proof, but it, it's a peculiar thing about mystery fiction as well, and criticism in mystery fiction. Art, because it's quite a small community, and quite often reviewers are often writers in turn, and there are conferences or there are forums where where you're going to cross paths with people you might have talked about. I think the default mode is if you don't like a writer, you just don't review them at all rather than having to say anything bad about them. If you look at newspaper columns, it's quite rare to find a really bad review of a crime novel, particularly by an established writer, uh, unless they're, they're, they've reached the stage of a, a Patricia Cornwell, say, where actually, you know, it's acid off a duck's back, you know, really, <laughs> essentially. Um, but for most writers, the, the, I think, I think the, the, the default is, is not to review them. I mean, I know that there are there are writers who review who just don't like my work. And that's fine. I get, actually get on well with them personally. Um, it's but, always awkward though, isn't it? Well, I, 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 remember, I remember meeting a writer who'd reviewed my second book and uh, just meeting him at a party and I'd, I'd never met him before, but this was the first time I met him. And, I, hello, and all I could think about was this scathing review. The, the best thing he was able to say was, this novel isn't all bad. <laughs> that, was, that was the one line I could remember as I was shaking his hand and going, hello, I was at a fantasy <laughs> convention um, a few years after Every Dead Thing was published. And there was a quite well-known writer, since he since died, um, who kept kind of circling me all evening. And um, and eventually, when he was not three sheets to the wind, but certainly two and a half sheets to the wind, he sat down and he said, uh, he, said, I, he said, I really just wanted to say, um, I'm really sorry about that review that I gave uh, The Book of Lost Things. 
Um, and he said, my, when, I, when my wife read it, she, she, she actually tore strips off me and said that you only, you only gave that a bad view because that was the book that you wanted to have written. And he, sa- and he said, I'm really, really sorry about that. And I said to him, I didn't even know you'd reviewed it. <laughs> <laughs> so I've had a couple of experiences of like that. But, but I think it's, it's, if there's a fault, because actually we are very, very intelligent. Uh, the mystery criticism is, is in pretty good hands. The people who are writing it are generally very, very good. But I do think, I do think there's a bit of a reluctance to be seen to say anything terribly bad about established writers or writers whose paths you might cross. It's much easier simply to ignore the book. Yeah. Yeah, or just or just not review it if you don't like it. Yeah, well, that's um, exactly or, that's exactly it. Yeah. <clears throat> and I mean, certainly, I understand the that newer writers need the reviews. I guess so. You're always going to go for the the newer writer if you've got a choice. This is or oh, somebody's eighteenth novel yeah, or somebody's yeah, first novel. Yeah. Um, and then again, they're always going to go for novels in translation most of the time. I know that I know the reviewers certainly were under quite a lot of pressure from literary editors. You know, if there's a choice of books, you'll go for the one that's translated from the original Norwegian. We shall just take a short break. We'll be talking to John Connolly uh, much more after the break, specifically about his, his new Charlie Parker novel, The Woman in the Woods. But before then, it's time for our roving reporter, Paul Hirons, the man with the spyglass, to go out and about. Uh, what have you got for us this week, Paul? Yes, thank you, Mark. I'm delighted to say that one of the rising stars of US crime fiction, William Boyle, is joining us on the line from Oxford, Mississippi. William, welcome to A Stab in the Dark. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Paul. Now, William, even though you live down in Mississippi, you're a Brooklynite through and through, right? And that borough of New York has has really been an influence throughout literary history. Everyone from Colm Tobin, Hubert Selby Jr. and Paul Auster have set stories there. Um, But your debut novel, Gravesend, paints a real gritty, modern 21st century picture uh, of Brooklyn that we don't normally get to see in film or actually in books that often. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about the area and, and the story in, in Gravesend? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm from, and my family still lives in the Gravesend and Bensonhurst sections of Brooklyn, which is kind of the southern part of Brooklyn, close to Coney Island, um, not too far from Coney Island. Um, but it's not, you know, I mean, I think there's so much kind of literature coming out of, of Brooklyn, but it's a, a totally different Brooklyn that you, you often see and, and a lot of what's out there. Um, so, I, you know, I don't really see places like my neighborhood and the surrounding neighborhoods um, represented too much anymore. I mean, I think there's some of that in kind of, you know, 70s cinema. Um, you know, my, my neighborhood is in uh, the French Connection and in Saturday Night Fever. Um, Two very but, different films, there. I have to be yeah. said. <laughs> yeah, they are, but they but they both capture the you know the neighborhood in a way that and Bensonhurst and Graves. I'm, I say the neighborhood, but I'm really talking about both of those neighborhoods in um, in in some way that you know has never really been captured since. I don't think um, so. Gravesend, yeah, Gravesend is a novel that is um, set mostly. Um, in, in that place, um, it does kind of move around a little bit. It goes into Manhattan for a little while. It goes into upstate New York for a little while. Uh, it kind of goes into some surrounding neighborhoods. Um, but, uh, you know, the, I get to call it Gravesend because it's about these characters who are from there, who carry the place with them, who are shaped by the place. And it's, it's kind of a, you know, dark, um, vision of, of how people get trapped 
by narrow narrowness and narrow ways of thinking and narrow ways of being. And I guess everyone that lives in a small kind of provincial neighbourhood or borough or town, even over here in the UK, can kind of uh, recognise that feeling of being trapped and, 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 and for whatever reason, whether it's family that's tying you there or a job or kind of, a, you know, bad things happening to you that always ties you down. I think everyone can kind of relate to that, right? Yeah, it's been, I mean, one of the, yeah, I've lived in Mississippi for almost, 10 years now and uh, i'm back in brooklyn a lot but one of the things that's been interesting for me to see is just like you know friends of mine people who've read the book from here who really relate to it in a way that i don't think they ever expected to relate to a book about new york city um for that reason because i'm kind of writing about it feels like i'm writing about small town life in a big city and and I, i guess that's something about kind of these neighborhoods in in New York that are kind of on the margins, that are at, at the edges of the boroughs, and that are kind of last stops on the subway line, that are are far from everything, far from culture, and and kind of um, still a little bit removed from from uh, the the kind of what you think of when you think of downtown Brooklyn or when you think of Manhattan. Absolutely. Now um, you mentioned uh, that you live in Mississippi now and have been living there for quite a while. Um, has living down there kind of altered your perception of Gravesend and, and New York at all? Uh, yeah, you know, I think it has. It's been, um, I haven't lived in Brooklyn full time since I was 18 or so. Um, I like kind of underdog places. Uh, I think Mississippi is kind of an underdog place. And, um, you know, being in Mississippi has just kind of taught me a lot about the country I think in general and and so it's it's changed the way I see um, New York a little bit it's changed the way I see my neighborhood uh, a little bit um, you know I mean I think there's been so much change in New York in the last 15 years or so and mm. um, you know most of it for me is is not great you know um, especially in Manhattan and and downtown Brooklyn um, there's for you know I say that, but there's obviously lots of amazing stuff happening too. But there's also lots of stuff that's that's going away and that's kind of fading away. That that was wonderful. That was what made the city the city to me. Um, but you know, I mean, I think uh, yeah, I mean, I think my neighborhood is is kind of indicative of of now what makes New York really still a, a really interesting place and the way it's changed and adapted and and welcomed new. Um, new populations and, and that that's kind of breathed a new life into it um absolutely and if you get me start you know start me off on gentrification and uh, yeah. destroying history then i think we're going to be here all night but <laughs> let's talk about your second book the lonely witness uh yeah. which is out in the uk in november and it's also set in gravesend why did you decide to go back there um well i had you know i had this uh, i want the the main character of The Lonely Witness is Amy Falconetti, who is a, a kind of small character in Gravesend. She is um, in Gravesend. She's a, a bartender who uh, the main character, Alessandra, hooks up with um, uh, for a night. And that's, you know, and then goes back to see her. And that's really all we see of her in, in Gravesend. Um, I, she's a character I just kind of, after I got done writing the book, I kind of worried about and wondered about. And um, so I thought it'd be interesting to, you know, 
seven years later, um, the lonely witness takes place in February 2017, which is just about seven years, I think, maybe a little less after the action of Gravesend. Um, so that you know, they've had this whole relationship, her and Alessandra, that we don't see, and Alessandra has has left has left Brooklyn and um, and moved back to Los Angeles, and now Amy is is stayed behind in this neighborhood. Um, she's not from this neighborhood. She's from Queens originally, um, and she you know she's she's kind of got a new lonely life in this neighborhood where she's she's traded in her bartending job in the city and um, and sold all her records for cash and is now kind of gotten gotten a little religious and is delivering communion to elderly people in the neighborhood. Um, I just thought this was a really, uh, you know, interesting way to, to see the neighborhood. It's outsider perspective of somebody kind of in hiding there almost. Mm-hmm. Well, William, I can't wait to read it. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Honestly, uh, to everyone listening, William really is uh, worth a read. Gravesend is fantastic, and he really is one of the country's sort of real up-and-coming uh, crime writers, uh, real sort of urban noir stuff, which is you just get really immersed in the character. So, William, once again, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, oh, thank and, you so uh, much for having me, Paul. I really appreciate it. No worries. Great to talk to you. Yeah, of course. And, Mark, with that, it's back to you. <laughs> Welcome back. We are talking to John Connolly. And just to go back again, John, did you know at that point that Charlie Parker was going to be a recurring character? By the time you'd finished Every Dead Thing and you'd started putting Dark Hollow together, did you know you were going to stick with this guy? Yeah, not, not that, that 20 years later I'd right. still be doing it. Um, I, I There was at one point, I think it was possibly after the third book, when I actually thought that maybe it would just be three novels that, that, that I might that I might put an end to him and, and, and do something slightly different. And I'm very glad that I didn't. I think I was I was young and a, and a kind of purist and I had all kinds of peculiar notions, as you do. Um, and I suppose I, I, I wasn't sure how how you could sustain a series. It's always been one of the questions that, that I've wondered. A couple of years back, um, Dennis Lehane came to Dublin and we were having a conversation Um and Lehane said, what's been quoted quite often since, he said, you know, no one ever says that they, they love the the 19th book in a series or the 14th. It's always the first, second mm. or third. And I wondered, is there a kind of inbuilt obsolescence in a series? And possibly, uh, and I, I did put a lot of thought into this. I began thinking about this somewhere around The Killing Kind and certainly into, into The White Road. Um, how... If you, if you are, if you do commit yourself to writing a series for what may be decades, what can you do to avoid that sense of obsolescence or that sense of repetition that comes with it? And in part, it struck me that one of the difficulties was that detectives, by and large, didn't have memories. In mm. that writers tended to write quite discrete episodes in the characters' lives. Um, and so... What you had was, you know, a series of, there was an investigation, the investigation came to an end, there was a whatever conclusion, and the next is a completely new investigation that appears to, that has no connection with what went before it. And so the pleasure for the reader is generally in, in the character. Now, you know, all good fiction is character driven. So everything comes out of character. Um, there's an, it's an error that's, uh, that's sometimes made in, in talking about mystery fiction that it's somehow plot driven. 
mystery fiction isn't plot driven. By and large, the plots don't change very much. If the bare bones of them tend to be quite similar, uh, readers tend to pick them up because they have the pleasure of spending time with these characters for which they not surprisingly develop an affection if you are reading about characters for a decade or 20 years or in my case the first mystery novelist I ever read was Ed McBain who wrote about the 87 precinct for more than 50 years some of the books were good some of them were very good some of them were were just okay and they, they dwindled off a little bit towards the end but you went back to them for the pleasure of spending time with Steve Carella or Mayor Mayor and, and the interactions between those characters. And then you forgave plots that were a little bit weak. Uh, something similar to Robert B. Parker. Nobody picked up a Robert B. Parker novel for the plotting. Mm. You picked up a Robert B. Parker for the interactions between Hawke and Spencer and you know, the fizzles of the lines. Um, and as, as a writer, you can, you can make a very good career out of that. Because right readers will be very forgiving as long as they get their fix, as long as you give them the book and the characters, they they'll generally go along with it. It takes an awful lot to make significant numbers of readers grow tired with the series. You really have to start resting on your laurels to a significant degree. But I wondered is there was there a way of avoiding that? And and part of it was was I looked at other genres uh, because I still even now I, I I my reading thankfully is pretty wide. Um, and so I looked at historical fiction, but to, more to, to fantasy and science fiction traditions. And they had a lot of faith in, in the memory of readers and in readers' capacity to, to follow quite complex threads over long periods of time. You know, fantasy literature and science fiction are based on it. You're talking six and 700, 800-page novels, some of them published two and three years apart. You had a great example at the moment is George Orwell Martin. You know, we've all had a, a kind of primer because the TV series has been on. But prior to that series appearing, people were content to wait. And, you know, they, they would pick up the book and yeah, he would find ways to remind you of who characters were. By and large, you kept all this stuff in your head. And yet we had none of that faith in mystery readers. It's like mystery readers were somehow this kind of genetically related goldfish that they wouldn't be able to retain anything in their heads. And I thought, well, OK, suppose if you're going to write a series, can it be a sequence? Can it effectively, can you find a way to create novels that a reader can pick up at any point in the series and enjoy? Um... But if you were to read them in order, you were getting pieces of a larger puzzle. And therefore, part of the pleasure of reading them would not just be whatever the latest case was or spending time with characters. Part of the pleasure would be, as with these other genres, what happens next? I want to know what happens next. And, and I, that's, that became the... I took two years off after writing White Road. And literally, it was, it was I'd been taken slightly by surprise by becoming a writer. I wanted to see what was in my armoury. So I, I wrote short stories because that's a very good way of testing. I'd never written short stories. The first thing I wrote was Every Dead Thing. I don't have short stories in my drawer. I don't have abandoned novels. I have a slightly obsessive nature, which is really good for being a writer because I don't abandon things. If I start something, I finish it. I, I, I'm not able to leave things mm. uncompleted. Um, and so that was why I think yes, Every Dead Thing took such a long time because I just was intent upon finishing this thing. And had I not finished it, I, I would never have become a writer. I would never have written anything again. And I left every dead thing unfinished. So I, I took, so I wrote short stories. I wrote a standalone novel that like a lot of standalone novels, you could simply have dropped Parker down. And I did put it in Parker's universe. He passes through the book at one point. But in theory, with some small changes, it could have been a Parker novel. But the the opportunity really was, was to think, was to have a chance to think. And, and that was what I did. And when I came back with The Black Angel, I knew that I was going to do a sequence. I knew that there would be a mythology. I knew that books would feed into each other. And that's persisted. So what... What essentially you're talking about is a saga. 
I mean, mm. in, in, in that mm-hmm. sort of tradition of fantasy novels. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, and you've taken breaks from the Charlie Parker saga to do other things, I've the short still, stories. I've, and I've the, still produced a Parker book a year. I, a I Parker book a year? Pretty, yeah, part, I, I, the other things run alongside them. They tend okay. to come out at other times of the year. But I, yeah, when I think you, I've done... When do you I've sleep? Done, <laughs> huh? yeah, it's a lot <laughs> of do other things. Yeah, I, you know, I write every day. Yeah. And if you write every day and if you do a thousand words a day, five days a week, mm-hmm. you very quickly have a draft. You know, six or seven months you have a draft and then you give yourself four or five months to rewrite. I love rewriting. So I, I don't find it a huge imposition. Well, let's just talk about about that mashup, to use a, a horrible uh, modern term, of, of, of two different genres, which is essentially the, the traditional private eye novel. Uh, in the vein of somebody like Ross MacDonald, who I know is a is a big influence, um, and that that tradition of the uncanny, if you want that that much more folkloric Irish tradition, um, and it's always been the supernatural elements in the books, and some are more to the fore in other books than you know than in some of the other books that have kind of put the backs up of certain of the more conservative elements, usually American, I think. Uh, of your readers, but I sense that you kind of enjoy doing that. That the more that the more they go, you can't do this. The more you go, yes, I bloody well can. I think it was it was it was slightly more of a problem at the beginning. Um, there were writers who were prepared to um, to experiment. To read. James Lee Burke would have elements. He he would he would you know there's in the electric mist with, with confederate my books are but but you know saying. anytime uh, you know Robert Shaw sees a ghost it's he's been hit in the head by a baseball or something you know that that Burke is reluctant to commit too to entirely t- to this idea um and I suppose it was William Hortzberg's Falling Angel, which became the basis for Angel Heart. But I, I'm not sure whether Hortzberg would have defined that as a as a mystery, as a crime novel. He I think he was leaning much towards more towards horror from the beginning. Some of the experimentation tended to come from the other extreme. There were, and still continues to be, in the in the horror genre, you will have people uh, taking some of the conventions of the private eye novel. Um, the Dresden Files would be one example, or uh, F. Paul Wilson's Repairman Jacket. Repairman Jacket's a bit, a bit like Reacher, except they just have a... They're, they're certainly more of a, a supernatural bent because that was the tradition he was coming out of. It was less prevalent from the other angle, from, from the the mystery side or the crime side. And I think that was because of what I said earlier, that we're very embedded in that rationalist tradition. Being Irish, I didn't feel part of that tradition. And the the options were to import the tropes and conventions of the US crime novel, because that was the thing that interested me into Ireland, which simply wouldn't have worked. Um, the, a, the private eye tradition doesn't have any kind of tenure here because the the philosophical underpinnings of it are, uh, are bear no relation to England or Ireland. Uh, you know, it comes out of America. It comes out of a, slight, a frontier mentality to some degree. It comes out of an absolute lack of faith in the forces of law and order and the institutions of the state to look after the vulnerable. We didn't have that kind of collapse here. Um, and so the other option was to, to, and it was a way of escaping, like I said earlier, those expectations of an Irish writer, was to see what, what I could bring to the American crime novel that wasn't there already. And what that was, was that European sensibility. What that was, was that fascination with folklore and mythology. And even my view of forest, you know, in a, I set my novels in Maine, which are, you know, most of it's forest. But Americans are very practical about forests. Yes, they're dangerous. And yes, if you get lost in them, you'll die. But you'll die just because, you, you know, you'll starve. Uh, or you might get attacked by an animal. But by and large, you'll, 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 you'll just get lost. You won't be able to find your way back. You won't be able to eat and you'll die. 
the European traditions are more atavistic fear of forests. Forests represent something very dark in our psyche. And I suppose that was something that I brought to them. There would be no point in writing crime novels that Americans could write. Mm. They do perfectly well themselves. <laughs> the point was to try and do something that didn't exist precisely in that form before. Uh, now it's quite different in that there's a generation that's come up, and it does feel odd to feel like I feel like an old fart. But you, you, you know, clearly I'm 50 this year, and I can. There's a generation of writers coming up who are in their 30s or in their 40s who've kind of come after me, um, who were exposed to uh, all kinds of genre fiction, who were exposed to graphic novels, who didn't have that purest attitude at all. Particularly in the US, I think they 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 become much better at picking and choosing what they want to and creating kind of interesting hybrids. So you know, there's a series set in in the United States. There's a guy writing a series uh, about a policeman investing crimes as the world is coming to an end. You know, they have a little bit of that science fiction, speculative fiction to, to them, but they are very much mystery novels. Um, and so that purism isn't quite there to the same degree. It, it lingers in. In criticism, I suppose, and also it, mystery, unfortunately, is 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 becoming an old person's genre. If you go to a mystery convention in the the the, the, the age profile, particularly in the U.S., seems to be increasing. All it just seems to be getting older and older. There's something very refreshing about going to a fantasy or science fiction co- convention because it's it's so many young people. There's a vibrancy to it, um, you know, which is not to say that people don't read it, but certainly the fascination with collecting, for example, that would have been, you know, that was a, a huge powerhouse for sales for me initially. It's people who wanted signed first editions of, you know, of mystery novels. I think that those readers are dying off. Uh, I want to talk, John, about, about the new book, The Woman in the Woods. Uh, so very brief, The Great North Woods give up the body of a young woman and it becomes obvious that she's given birth before she died. And Parker's trying to find the child because it becomes obvious that somewhat more darker forces are also trying to find the child uh, because of something that they believe he might possess or that the people who have him might possess. Tell, tell us a bit about the fractured atlas. Um, a few years back, um, I, I, took, I, I tend to occasionally take time out to write short stories. Uh, I, I'm not good at writing short stories alongside novels because I think you have to rework the machinery. It has to be reprogrammed slightly. And it's a dangerous thing to write too many short stories. You get into, a, they're almost like hits of espresso. You know, a novel is this huge, you know, effort that's going to take, in my case, a year, two years, sometimes 10 years to write a short story if you're lucky. And if you come out of the traps, there's a couple of weeks' work. And um, and so I'd written, I, I had written a, a a novella called A Wanderer in Unknown Realms about a man um, looking for a, a, a book, a, a myth, I guess a kind of mythic tome um, that that essentially was capable of rewriting the universe or, or, or reflecting an alternate universe. I'd become very interested in quantum physics. Uh, part of it fed into the Gates, the Samuel Johnson novels, this idea of parallel universe and the science behind them I was really curious about. And actually, The Wonder in Unknown Realms came out of that. And subsequently, I wrote another four stories that tied in with it. I, I, I liked the, the idea of this this book. And as I was writing those, I thought, actually, this is part of the universe of the world, the books that I write. In the same way, oddly enough, like I said, that, 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 the, Parker, that the Samuel Johnson books are part of that universe. They don't seem to be. But actually, there are tropes and conventions in those books that are, that are referred to also in the Parker books. Um, and, and the woman in the woods, in a way, I, I 
could almost, it, it, it's quite clearly re- referencing the Book of Lost Things as well and its fascination with fairy tales and the idea of books not being fixed objects. And so it seemed natural to me to try and find a way to combine these these two elements in my prose. The difficult thing is that obviously if you write a, if I write a book of short stories, it sells to a fraction of the the, the readership that I would get for a Parker book. Mm. And so you're in some ways referencing work that nobody's going to have read. So or not many people would have read. So the the trick, I suppose, was to do it so that if you hadn't read the novella, the book still made perfect sense. If you had read the novella, occasionally you'd go, ah, ah that's <laughs> what that is. And I see what that was. And that's there's a kind of pleasure in that. Um, and so it also feeds into the next book. And then they will form, those six novels will form a self-contained sequence that will move right back in a circle to The Wolf in Winter and will finish that series of alliterative novels or alliteratively titled novels. I'm not Sean Penn, obviously. <laughs> right, compulsively alliterizing, alliteratizing. Um, and so, the, so that was it. So it was, it, I, I've said to my, my editor, my long-suffering British editor, and particularly my American editor suffers too, I suppose, um, that every book should be an experiment and every book should carry with it the risk of failure or else there really isn't any point in doing this. You know, you don't learn very much from succeeding. You learn from the experiments. And um, and that's part of the pleasure of writing for me. I, I, I don't want to, to write the book that I wrote last year. I don't want to write the book that I wrote the year before. Mm. Um, and I've been surprised in a way by how much I've been able to get away with. And I suspect actually that had I told readers at the beginning, or had they known what these novels would have turned into, I suspect a lot of people wouldn't have read them. I think they'd have gone, that just sounds silly. That sounds ridiculous. I don't read books like that. I read books like this. Yeah. And yet the Parker novels have quite carefully taken people a little step further each time. The, 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 the amount of, or the supernatural elements have become slightly more pronounced over time. And so people have gradually eased into it to the point where actually nothing in the book seems strange anymore. They've, they've read something, I think, not everybody, but certainly some of the, the readership is, are now reading something that I think they might not have expected to be reading a decade ago. Well, there's the, I mean, the, the, those supernatural elements which we've already spoken about very much to the fore in, in The Woman in the Woods um, certainly had me rifling through the attic in case I had any toy telephones that I wanted to get rid of. Um, but it's interesting that you should talk about those, those steps that, that the readers are taking with you because reading The Woman in the Woods, I, and I've had this feeling probably the last three or four of your books that I've read, where it really seems to me like there's an arc there's and and I wonder how much of that is in your head. Do you do you know where this is ending? Do you? Do, I mean, or is it? I mean, I remember having a conversation. I mean, I think Lee Child a few years ago very famously said, "I've written Reacher's End. I know how Reacher dies. He bleeds out in a hotel room, and I've written it." And then I was talking to him a couple of years ago. So what happened about that? And he went, "Ah, well, yeah. Come back to me in ten years' yeah, I time. To, I want another when, yacht." Yeah. No. <laughs> well, but but do do you see and you know do you see an end to Parker's journey? I think because, as the, the phrase you used earlier, the saga, this idea of, of a sequence of novels requires a conclusion, that it, it can't really be open-ended. Um, whether it's the conclusion readers expect or not, that's, that's a different question. Uh, I, I like writing these books. I like seeing the world through his eyes. These are not an imposition in any way. No. And, and I hope that if I got to the point where I started feeling that way, I, and I'm not sure, you know, most writers, they, you know, they don't outlive their characters. You know, they die and the series is kind of left hanging or 
you know, now increasingly persistently, uh, writers pick it up. I, 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 I'm still very much enjoying writing these books. And if I go to the doctor once a year because I'm a middle-aged man, and, and if you were to say to me, you know, don't book any holidays after next summer, uh, I would certainly be able to give the ending... And I have a line, a last line. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, but I, you know, you know, I hope that I hope I never have to use in a strange way. Um, but you're aging, Parker. I mean, you're making yeah, you know, and I'm aging the people, aging. and not just the people around him. I mean, Angel and Louis are older uh-huh. than he is. Angel are in their sixties now, and and the book makes no. Certainly, the woman in the woods is quite clear. These are older men who are slowing up their. And you don't want to be writing one of those one of those books, you know, like those movies where you know. These old guys have one last adventure. Yeah, no, Let's go see old Charlie Parker. He'll sort us out. You know, you don't. You, you know, no, you're I, I certainly Louis don't. Louis in a wheelchair. No, and, you know, no, that, no. There has to be a, an appropriateness to to whatever happens. Um, but as I said, I, I I love writing these books, and I'm going to give the the six novel sequence that that will come to an end with the next book. Those books kind of take place all over the space of about eighteen months. They're actually really, really quite contained, and that's partly me trying to slow the momentum of the books mm. I think uh, and I may write I, I have an idea for a novel that might go back to the the weeks after the death of Parker's wife to do something very pared down that isn't necessarily tied up with that mythology um, so for now I, I still I still like doing them. you mentioned Angel and Louis obviously also major characters in the series who you, your readers love and one of the things that always strikes me when when they enter the narrative, although not so much in this book because there's some serious stuff happening in, in their lives as well. Um, it, it always seems like it's a chance for you to get your funny on a bit. No, do you know what I mean, John? Mm. I mean, you're, you know, you're, you're a funny guy. You like, you know, you like a gag as much How as the I next funny? person. How am I funny? No, but you know, <laughs> I, I amuse you. No, but you know what I mean. I mean, Parker is not... Parker's not... But the, yeah, well. He's not a I agree with you. Absolutely. The, the, books, kind of the books would be unreadable yeah. without Angel and Louis. Yeah. The books, uh, certainly at the beginning, they simply would have been too dark without them. They provided a, a little bit of levity and a lightness of touch because they weren't tortured. They're not tortured characters. Even now, down the line, they're not tortured or t- tormented characters. They actually have a very clear view of their place in the universe. Um, and so, yes, when they come in, yes, there, is, there is also the fact that Certainly, those early books are all first-person narratives, so they exist. You're spending a lot of time in Parker's head. When they arrive, you have dialogue. And as we, we know from our... You're certainly very good at that idea that using dialogue as a way to to, to, to break up... The, actually, just even just to break up the space on the page. Mm. Physically, the book the pages look different. And so they give the reader a chance to breathe, which is really, really important. There's nothing worse than reading page after page of very, very dense prose. It's it's actually quite difficult, yeah. psychologically different, difficult for the reader. So, so that impression that, that, that of levity is, I think, as as much a, a product of what is have how the page looks as anything else. But you're right. Yeah, they they humanize them, uh, and in that sense, they become hugely important. But they've also, and this wasn't intended at the beginning, have become interesting in their own right. Um, you know, and and one of the pleasures for me of writing the books, I remember we were having this conversation before about, um, was it John Harvey, maybe, was the person you referenced, or Harry Bosch, those ideas that the moments where the character... You're looking out of the window. looking moments. out of the window, yeah. yeah. Um, or the moments where the char- you're seeing the character in domestic situations where it's not actually anything to do with, with the plot. And it goes back to what I was saying about character earlier. I think, for me as a writer, that's become increasingly interesting. 
I love writing those moments. And I think for the reader, that's part of the pleasure of it. Yeah, it's, it's nice that the plot keeps you turning the pages and, you know, on your way to Malaga, you're not really noticing the guy snoring in the next seat. That's fine. But actually, part of, I, I think readers pick up the books for those moments now. They want those little moments of respite. They want those moments where there are three men in a bar or three men sitting over a cup of coffee. And actually, they're not talking about the investigation at hand at all. They're talking about something that's you know, entirely meaningless because actually that's what people do. Yeah. And we don't all have, you know, where we go, let's cut aside all the all, let's, all, the, all the, the nonsense and let's just get down to brass tacks. You know, <laughs> if somebody sits down and does that, you, you get up and leave, you know, that we... We quite like the fact that occasionally these characters are loquacious, that they open themselves up, that they reveal something about themselves. And and there's a pleasure in writing those moments, I think. Yeah, and that, that, that comes across very much in the books. We're running out of time. So many things that we haven't had a chance to talk about. Music. I know there's a CD available to certain readers with this book. We haven't had a chance to talk about that. So, listeners, just imagine uh, that we've talked about music. Um, the, 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 the YA fiction, the fantasy novel, fantasy novels, and the, the novel you wrote last year, He, the, the novel about Stan Laurel. Um, but just before we finish, what is next for you? I hear some rumours about non-fiction. Can you confirm or deny? Uh, I'm job? actually still trying, trying to write that at the moment. It's due for delivery next month. Yeah, I'm, I'm writing. Uh, I was asked by a, a British publisher to write uh, a piece on film. Uh, you could pick any film that you liked. It almost had to be quite obscure and do anything you wanted with it. And when they mentioned this to me, one, a film just immediately came to mind. And yet I, it's not a film that's particularly good and I couldn't figure out why I'd picked this title. And I realised that it was to do with my memories of when I saw it or my mm. childhood. And so it became a book about nostalgia and how, why is this important? And I kind of fell down a rabbit hole and I found this, that the University of Southampton has a department devoted to the study of nostalgia. And it's the benefits of it, the psychological benefits of it. So the book, changed. it was supposed to have just been a palate cleanser of 20,000 words. A course about nostalgia? Not just a course. It, it's was it full of people complaining that the course isn't as good as yeah, it used to be? Well, it, exactly. <laughs> well, this is, no, it's, it's really, this is why, I, this is why I, we could, that's how I end up falling down the rabbit hole. Um, they found really interesting, just before we finish, really curious things. They found that um, if you went into, a, say, an older folks' home and you showed them a film that they'd loved from their childhood or that mattered to them, their body temperature went up. So you had a physiological response to an emotional stimulus. Um, and we'd always associated nostalgia with depression, but now increasingly, especially the, the more we look at people with psychological problems, it's people who aren't nostalgic, who don't have reference points from their past to suffer from depression. Nostalgia, the things we're nostalgic for, particularly from our childhood and, and in later life, um, they're like pittens in the rock face of our lives. And you know, you put pittens in so that if you fall when you're climbing the rock, you don't fall right down to the bottom again, you only fall so far. And these become markers, these things. And they're often tied up with family circumstances or parts of our lives. Uh, and they're like a little beacon. Um, and so they reckon uh, there's actually a, 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 a psychological test you do. It's a seven-question psychological test that the University of Southampton has set up, along with these Chinese universities. And they reckon to, to be healthy, two or three times a week, you need to take time out and find something that you love from your past, whether it's a piece of music, whether it is a film. And, and don't be looking don't be things for the past. Always be looking forward. Actually, they say, really, for your own psychological, take time out and do that. Don't feel bad about it. It's good for you. And it will, it, will, it will keep you sane in the long run. So the book became about that. Something that had started as something quite simple and throwaway right. has now ended up twice the length it should be. You're not be. going to tell us what the film is. Can you it's a, yeah, I, I, well, of course, yeah. It's, a, it's an old film called Horror Express, which was okay. made in the early 70s in Spain by 
Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Okay, okay. Um, just right before we finish, the thing we, we always ask our guests to do is just to come up with a couple of reader recommendations. So mm. what, what have you been reading lately that you can recommend to our listeners? Um, well, within or loosely within the genre, I've become quite... Oh, fond. anything you like, John. Oh, well, I, well I, I've been very impressed by Mick Heron. Oh, I yeah. think the Jackson Lamb novels are very, very good. I'm a recent convert uh, to those, so I'm, on, I'm only on the second one of those. Uh, a woman called Becky Chambers, who's published by Hodder, who writes speculative fiction, beautifully written, but massive pleas for tolerance and decency in a world that seems to be increasingly intolerant and, and, and very reluctant to embrace decency. And I found particularly young women who read it just seem to connect with her in a way. Uh, I think they're fascinating little books. So they're the two people at the moment. So they're, they're the ones that I've read over the last two weeks that I've gone. Actually, I've just really enjoyed those books. <laughs> And that's about it for this episode of A Stab in the Dark. What have we learned? Well, we've learned that the Gothic tradition is largely Irish, anyone who expects to be published probably shouldn't be, and that a novel isn't necessarily a science fiction novel, even if it has a dirty great spaceship on the front cover. We hope to be back again soon, but in the meantime, you can find out more about A Stab in the Dark at uktv.co.uk slash astabinthedark, or get in touch with us on Twitter, hashtag astabinthedark. Plus, don't forget to subscribe and review us on your podcast app. If you like our podcast, please review and rate us. It really does make a difference. If you didn't like it, keep it to yourself. Oh, and just a quick reminder, you can watch the very best crime drama every day on UK TV channels Alibi and Drama. So with that, it's a huge thank you to my very special guest, John Connolly, and thanks to our producer, Paul Hirons. My name's Mark Billingham, and thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.